This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. As we all know, we are months away from the next federal election here in Canada. And there's this new survey that came out from Insights West that suggests a significant majority of Canadians are concerned that social media is going to be used to influence that election. Steve Mossop is the president of Insights West. He told our Linda Steele yesterday more about what they found out. We found that not only is it a big issue, but it's way bigger than what we saw. We have 71% who are worried about other countries and foreign governments using social media in our country to influence our election results in the upcoming federal election. Do you think that comes from what we've seen south of the border? Absolutely. Uh, but overall, there's a, there's a pretty massive concern for social media and the role it plays overall. And that's uh, for parties and their usage of social media, uh, special interest groups and partisan groups, as well as foreign governments and as well as individuals. So it really crosses the spectrum of concern. That is Steve Mossop on with Linda Steele yesterday. So we want to know for our hot question of the day, are you worried that social media is going to be used to influence that election outcome in this country? Now, we said the new Insights poll, Insights West poll suggests that we are, but what about you? Do you think, yes, it's likely? Or do you think, no, we've smartened up? Like, there's been so much attention paid to this issue over the last couple of years. I wonder if we have gotten smart enough to be able to filter out that information on our social media feeds, but you know better than I do because you're out there, you're like you're getting a lot of your information off of social media. So you tell me, do you think we've smartened up or do you still think that it's likely that we are going to get influenced on our social media feeds and it'll affect that election outcome? So go to simisara 980 or at CKNW to cast your vote on this. You can also email me, simi at cknw.com. Let me know what your thoughts are on that party is over. It may be spring, but winter is finally coming for those who rely on bulk cash transactions in their business model, those hiding their identities from regulators and police while buying homes in our real estate market, and those profiting handsomely from the death and misery of the overdose crisis. That was Attorney General David Eby yesterday when he spoke at the release of these latest reports into money laundering in our province. And the numbers were huge and shocking, right? $5 billion, these reports say, laundered through real estate in 2018 alone. Just staggering. Uh, The Finance Minister, Carol James, says housing is being used as, quote, a vehicle for the proceeds of crime. And these reports also suggest that this is having an impact on housing affordability. So there were two reports. There was the Maureen Maloney Ministry of Finance report, and then there was the Dr. Peter German report. And in the German report, he talks about some of the red flags, things such as buying property with cash, um, unusual mortgages that are taken out from unregulated lenders that are paid off, taken out, paid off in a kind of a systematic fashion, or maybe they have really unusual interest rates. And so a a lot of the recommendations that uh, were dealing with the real estate industry had to focus on compliance and how to do that. For instance, one of the recommendations said that the onus for compliance for the Real Estate Services Act and proceeds of crime and terrorist financing action should be directly on individual real estate licensees. So that obviously would have an impact on real estate agents. So we wanted to talk about that this morning with the help of Aaron Seeley, who's the Executive Officer of the Real Estate Council of British Columbia. Aaron, thank you for joining us. Hi, Simi. Thanks for having me. I'm sure you've had a chance to kind of peruse the report at this point. What did you think about that? What does it say about the real estate industry? 
So I think what's interesting about the report is it really demystifies some of the themes of the bags of cash and makes it clear how complex and significant this issue is and how important it is for the provincial and federal regulators to work together. So we really welcome the recommendations. We've had some opportunity for input along the way, and we look forward now to using this as a blueprint with government to address these risks. There were a couple of things I was curious about that I thought, I'm surprised that we don't do this already. For instance, eliminating the exemption for salespeople who are employees of developers. So if they're still selling you a condo, do they not necessarily have like a real estate license? Uh, If you're a salesperson and you're employed exclusively by the developer, it is an exemption under the Real Estate Services Act as it's currently defined. And I think that's important to look at where consumers may not be aware of um, whose interests are represented. We want to ensure as the regulator of the real estate profession that the public has confidence in the system and that they are also informed. And I think we're interested in where the government will go to look at that recommendation. Okay. What do you think is the best way to deal with that? I think consumer education has been a big part of the shift in the Real Estate Council's mandate in the last couple of years, and you'll see more from us on that with social media and a sustained campaign, because a lot of it's about making sure consumers have the knowledge to go into the purchase, the biggest transaction of their lives, and they have the skills to know what questions to ask. And then on the other side, our commitment is very strong on the education of the real estate licensee, and we've been reviewing all of that education to make it more robust and rigorous so that the professionals really do have all of the most recent information um, to provide and that they still ensure they refer their clients for legal and tax advice where it's appropriate. That's the other important area. Right. Do you think there is more that the council could have done to regulate this? Because now it sounds like one of the recommendations is that uh, council is going to get regulatory practice standards for all kind of self-regulatory organizations. So is there more you could have done to prevent some of this? I think um, looking in the rearview mirror, it's always easy to say there there are things we would love to go back and look at doing differently. One of them we've already taken action on, which is how do we get out of our narrow interpretation of that mandate and work together with other regulators? And that's where the Real Estate Council has been the first real estate regulator in Canada to partner with FinTrack, the federal anti-money laundering um, regulator. And we are going to collaborate on much stronger education and also share intelligence so that we can really um, connect on the data. And that's another key theme in this report is the importance of that data collection and um, exchange. Do you think like do real estate agents, they're obviously a huge wealth of knowledge for what's going on out there, but have there not been enough outlets for them to share that knowledge? I think real estate professionals do a great job of sharing knowledge. I think they are really um, in small communities and large communities. They really are ambassadors Um, for the community and they also have important duties that they uphold in the services they provide and that's where we've been re-emphasizing in our education the role of a real estate professional is not a facilitator they're an agent and they represent their client's best interests and they protect the confidentiality of information they ensure that they are following lawful instructions of their client and so in that way I think consumers can feel protected that there's a framework of regulation behind the profession, there's always more we can do. And I think this report is really interesting in quantifying with a very robust methodology, the risks and laying out uh, what I think are some very exciting ways that we can work together to address money laundering. Like real estate agents also would have seen a lot of this behavior that is laid out in this report. Would they have reported it somewhere? Or if, and if not, why didn't they? 
Well, I think what's important to to distinguish is that there are red flags, and I think both reports talk about needing to look at the red flags, and you talked about them at the beginning of of Mm -hmm. your segment, um, but they're not always definitive. And so, you know, whether someone has a mortgage or not may not necessarily mean there's money laundering. It is complex, and it takes a lot of judgment, and I think what's interesting for us to look at as well is the obligation's been for the real estate professionals to identify the client, but how do we use education and work with FinTrack to make sure that real estate professionals really know their client and, and have more questions and more responsibility there is something I think that's been recommended here. So that that data can also be shared. And again, that, that collection and mm-hmm. exchange is where you do track risks best. Aaron, do you know of any cases, though, where real estate professionals have reported dodgy finances or weird situations involving their clients? They do submit suspicious transaction reports, and I know the the number of suspicious transaction reports about uh, real estate transactions is increasing. Uh, we see Centrax already done proactive education with the sector through the the real estate associations nationally and provincially. So we do see those numbers going up, and we know that there's vigilance as well on the part of the profession. But there's more we can do to give guidance and um, identify those red flags so that it can be a more systematic approach. So do you see the council's authority uh, expanding then on that front? Like, would there be more compliance? Would there be more penalties involved? I think we need to work with the superintendent of real estate and with the government to understand what um, the next steps will be on these recommendations. But we do welcome the opportunity for looking at our mandate through a broader lens. And as I said, avoiding those narrow silos that regulators often get stuck in. Right. So do you believe then that of the real estate agents out there, the professionals, do you think they today, if they saw something, you know, dodgy happening, a suspicious financial transaction, do you think they'd report it? Their brokerage and the way the system works uh, would have policies in place for reporting, yes. And is it always as consistent as it can be? I think that's where we're seeing that feedback from the report that there needs to be more. And we saw the word dismal used in the Peter German report. And that's the area we really want to focus on. How do we get that understanding? And how do we work with the federal regulator? We're not directly accountable right now for money laundering. Will that mandate expand? That's where we'll what the government has to say, but we do really have that strong partnership federally to ensure that where the reporting's required, real estate professionals understand it and they're complying. Okay, so then if there are more regulations coming, you welcome that? We welcome the opportunity to look at it. I think you always have to be prudent about regulation and ensure that you're using not just your your sticks, your enforcement tools, but also the proactive side where you're educating. And so we're really trying to emphasize across that spectrum to ensure that the public is protected by the profession. All right. All right. Aaron, thank you for this. Thanks a lot. That's Aaron Seeley, the Executive Officer of the Real Estate Council of BC, responding uh, to the two money laundering reports that came out yesterday. You know, this week, you may have heard in the news about the case of Dr. Mohammed Shamji. He is the Toronto neurosurgeon who pleaded guilty to second-degree murder in the death of his wife, Dr. Ilana Frick. This is the woman that he was married to for 12 years and the mother of their three children. The details of the case are shocking. And yet at this point, also shockingly all too common. A woman abused for years, mentally and physically, tries to leave her husband and protect her kids, and she ends up being killed for it. And here are some stats for you on this. Almost 67% of family violence victims in Canada are women and girls. On average, every six days, a woman in Canada 
is killed by her intimate partner. And intimate partner violence, according to StatsCan, accounts for one in every four violent crimes reported to police. So despite all the discussion and the awareness, we are still seeing these alarmingly high rates of domestic violence here in Canada. Now, in the case of Mohammed Shamji, the justice, John McMahon, said that this is another tragic instance of domestic homicide that he sees far too often. The court heard that the the victim in this case had served her husband with divorce papers two days before he attacked her, broke her neck and ribs, and choked her to death as their children were sleeping in the next room. Well, her mother told court at a sentencing hearing yesterday that their entire family has been destroyed by this, leaving them heartbroken and filled with rage, but they want to keep their daughter's memory alive. I also want to talk about domestic violence that she endured for 12 years before she died in the hope that other women in similar circumstances will, re- will realize that unless they have the courage to leave their partners at the early stage, they could suffer the same fate as Elena. That is Elena Frick's mother talking about this case. Domestic violence often underreported, but stats do reveal that it is, as we just said, pervasive in this country, so much so that it is considered an epidemic. We wanted to talk more about the awareness here today with Christy Uris, who is the regional coordinator of the program for ending violence at the Community Coordination for Women's Safety. Christy, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Simi. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you about this. I feel like this particular case has really kind of struck a nerve right across the country. Do you feel that way? Yeah, certainly. I think in particular the fact that um, these particular individuals involved were um, members of the community with high levels of education and status, I think has drawn particular attention to this case, Um, as well as the um, family coming out and talking about the impacts of Alana's death on their family and on their children and really trying to to create and draw attention to the pervasiveness of domestic violence that you so um, importantly talked about at the beginning of, of the segment. Yeah, is our tendency, do you think, still to kind of shy away from these? Like, does this not get enough attention? I think we're making progress. I think it's really important to highlight and and, uh, talk about all the ways in which our conversations around domestic violence and domestic violence homicide um, is more out in the open. We know that there are many um, groups and individuals who are working really hard on this issue. But I think there are still um, there is still a lot of misunderstandings about um, domestic violence, who commits it, what the risk factors are, um, how common it is, um, and what exactly domestic violence looks like. I think we often associate um, domestic violence with um, overt um, physical abuse, Mm -hmm. which is often present, but there are also many other kinds of more insidious course of controlling behaviors um, that were definitely present in this relationship and um, where there's a high level of risk for domestic violence homicide when um, a woman ends a relationship. Right. Now, in um, Elena Frick's case, uh, she tried many times to leave. She filed for divorce more than once. Is that typical from the cases that you hear, Christy? It's very typical. I mean, what, what, what we, it's, it's hard to quantify because obviously um, women's experiences are different. But what we do here is that we often see that women will, will try and leave up to 
we see about seven times before they're actually able to leave a relationship. And we know that there are significant barriers to leaving um, uh, an abusive relationship that are often not really well understood. Mm-hmm. Um, people will often ask the question, why, why doesn't she just leave? Right. Um, and besides the fact that we should be shifting that question to why do, why do these men abuse their intimate partners, there are, you know, many significant barriers, one of which um, the most obvious is, is that, you know, a woman very, very well may reasonably and justifiably believe that she's safer to stay in the relationship than she is to leave. And as you said, we, we know um, from research that um, <clears throat> after a separation is a really critical risk factor for intimate partner ho- homicide. So many women will stay in a relationship because there are ongoing threats of increased violence or she's afraid of what might happen if she actually does leave the relationship. And that fear is very justified based on statistics and what we see in terms of um, intimate partner homicide. So you just said that after a separation is the most dangerous time. Why is that? Is that... Women often, they get kind of, I guess, they think everything is going to get better. They think it's going to fix the situation, and then that's not the case? Well, it's, it's, it's because of the reaction um, from the abuser. So an, an abuser may increase um, the intensity of the violence or may, um, uh, in, you know, actually attempt or, or complete a, a homicide because, you know, if the woman has left the relationship, that's a shift. In, in his power and control. He's lost power and control in the relationship. She has taken some agency and, um, you know, made a decision that she's, she's, not, she's no longer going to be in that relationship. So it's a way of taking back some of that power and control. It's also about, often about punishing the victim. Right. Okay, that so, makes sense, yeah. You know, like, basically, you've decided to leave me and this is going to be the consequence. Um, so we often see... Those are, you know, reasons why we see this increase in violence and this, and also, um, you know, that increased risk of, of homicide in these cases. So it is a very dangerous time where women need lots of support and resources to help them get through, um, to get through yeah. everything that comes with with leaving a relationship. And also, we also see that there's an increased risk. Um, not just after after separation, but perhaps if a divorce comes through or custody papers, uh, sorry, there's an outcome of a custody case. So again, there's when there's that shift in a relationship, a shift in that power and control, that can also be a time of really increased risk as well. So what can we do to help that? So what can we do to help from the first time? You said on average, a woman leaves seven times. But what, what can we do to improve the chances from the first time they leave? Well, I think there's a number of different things that we can do and and obviously really connecting women to the supports and services that they need to um, get the emotional support to discuss what's going on in their lives as well as to um, actually do like a risk assessment about, you know, what's going on, what are the dangers and creating a safety plan. And this is something that... um, that anyone who's experiencing domestic violence can access through a community-based victim service agency or a, a stopping the violence counseling or outreach program, which are located all, all across BC. So getting those supports in place as soon as possible th- so that women can have somebody to talk to. And I think violence, um, 
for some women is very normalized and or it's not necessarily overtly physical. And so they don't necessarily see it as being uh, uh, something that falls within the de- definition of domestic violence. So if there's lots of, again, coercive controlling behavior, like financial control, sexual mm-hmm. jealousy, um you know, isolation, that's much more widespread and and much more normalized than physical violence. So being able to, you know, get um, information out into the world, and I think the media plays a really important role in this in terms of um, under, you know, what what are the signs and what are the symptoms and what are the supports that can be made available to, to people who are experiencing this so that they know that what's happening to them is, Mm-hmm. violence, and that there are supports and resources available. I mean, there's no easy answers to this mm-hmm. question. And, you know, people are working at uh, multiple layers uh, and levels of, of government and, and in the police and in the community to try and address these issues. But I definitely think, you know, we need some ongoing education and awareness and, you know, outreach to inform survivors and, and, and other people in the community of, of what these what these behaviors are and, and how... Right and they can get support. On that note then, Christy, uh, where can people go to for help? Are there, is there a website or something else that they can check out? Well, obviously, you know, if someone's in an immediate uh, situation of danger or they have immediate safety concerns, we always want to encourage them to contact the police, so call 911. Um, but if you're looking for, if you're, you know, someone who's going through um, domestic violence, um, there is a, a number that you can call. It's called Victim Link. And that number is 1-800-563-0808. And that's a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week crisis and referral line. And and um, the people who answer uh, the calls can refer um, someone to an agency or a resource that's local in their community. So that might be, as I said, it might be a community-based victim service worker who can meet with someone and, you know, tell them... Mm-hmm what to expect from the criminal justice system, give them emotional support, safety plan with them, um, and help them, you know, talk through what some of those barriers are to leaving and strategize with them and and create a realistic plan about how how to move forward. And it may be that, you know, it takes a few conversations and, um, you know, or a lot of ongoing support for that to happen. But that's definitely a really good first step. All right, great. Christy, thank you so much for the advice today. I really appreciate the time. Anytime. That is Christy Uris, the regional coordinator of the program for ending violence at the Community Coordination for Women's Safety. And once again, the number she said for Victim Link, 1-800-563-0808. Well, gas prices today heading into the weekend, hovering around $1.68 a litre, $1.69 if you're in the Metro Vancouver area. In the interior, around Kamloops, and so it's like $1.41, something like that. So it's no wonder that increasingly we are hearing and seeing people who want to stock up, so to speak. People who drive around with full jerry cans of gasoline in their vehicles. Begs the question, though, doesn't it? How safe can that be? And when gas prices spike like this, this is always a topic that is worth checking out. There might be a few things here that you need to know on this. That's why we're joined now by Lewis Smith, who's the manager of national projects with the Canada Safety Council. Lewis, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Cindy. Good morning. Good morning. Is this something that you hear of happening? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, even here in Ottawa, we're only a couple hours away from the New York border. So it happens fairly frequently here as well. Well, then I have to ask, what are the gas prices like in Ottawa right now? 
Uh, a bit less than you folks, thankfully. We're still looking somewhere in the ballpark of high 120s, low 130s. Right. Consider yourself lucky, Lewis, with that price. <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk oh, about the, sa- the let's talk about the safety aspects of this. Like, first of all, are you allowed to transport jerry cans of gas around in your vehicle every day? Legally speaking, yes. Uh, Transport Canada does have a specific exemption for uh, transporting gasoline. Uh, specifically, all Canadian residents are allowed to transport up to 150 kilograms of gas. Uh, the exemption specifies, though, that each individual container can't exceed 30 kilograms. So if we're talking about your standard 25-liter jerry can uh, full of gas, those are usually hovering somewhere around 20 kilograms. So we're talking about, at the high end, up to seven full cans that you're allowed to transport. Uh, obviously, you know, we're, we're probably talking a bit overkill here. I don't think most rational people are carrying no. around seven jerry cans, uh, but that is the, the upper echelon that you'd be able to carry. Right. And are we allowed to transport that back and forth across the border? Uh, yes, with a caveat. If ah. you're buying it in the States and bringing it back across can- to Canada, uh, there is a chance that it will be subject to duty. Uh, so you aren't legally required to... Uh, to declare any fuel that you put in your gas tank directly, but any fuel that's put in a jerry can, you do have to declare, and that could be charged depending on uh, on the border agent's decision. Right, okay, so that's at their discretion for that. Correct. Okay, but let's talk about safety issues here. Obviously, there are safer and less safe ways to transport this. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the, the, the issue that I think a lot of people tend to overlook when talking about transporting gasoline is that it's a very volatile element. Um, if we're putting it in a jerry can, uh, then by nature, the jerry can is explosive. You know, whether it's full of gas to the brim, overfilled, underfilled, or even if it's completely empty, but there are still fumes remaining, uh, all it takes is one shock of static electricity and the whole thing could explode. Ooh. You know, I'm not, I'm not in the business of being um, uh, incendiary here or overly, you know, hand-wringing, uh, but it's a very serious concern. And it, with a material that volatile, it's hard to predict and hard to trust. So how do you mitigate that? Well, the easiest way, of course, is don't do it. Uh, but if you do feel inclined to do it and you do feel inclined to save a few pennies uh, or a few dollars, depending on how many uh, jerry cans you're filling, uh, it's important to keep the jerry cans in a well-ventilated area. So we're not talking about putting it in the back seat of your car. We're certainly not talking about putting it in the trunk. Because in both those cases, the fumes can accumulate and cars aren't equipped to properly vent those fumes. So the best way to do it would be to properly strap them down in the back of a flatbed truck or alternatively on the, the roof of your car. Uh, but again, the key word there is securely. Uh, we don't want them flying off when you're driving down the highway, of course. That makes perfect sense, right? Uh, in your experience, Lewis, do people do this or do we tend to be kind of laissez-faire about this? Uh, from what I've seen personally and a bit anecdotally, uh, it's a bit of a mixed bag. You know, there, there's certainly that, that section of the population that, wants to save money any way they can. And I suppose when you're that close to Washington down in B.C., there's certainly some logic to it. Um, On the other hand, uh, from my personal experience, most people tend to just complain about it, of course, as as we tend to do, uh, but then fill up the gas tank anyways at uh, Petrocan or uh, at any gas station around. Right. Okay. So lots of things to be aware of here. I mean, the thing that gets me is that some people are doing this. They probably got kids in the car. It's their family vehicle. Like we, I think we tend to take this for granted. Oh, absolutely. And I think, I think that's the key concern here is that even if we're putting aside the, the explosive nature of it, you know, that if we're being realistic, the odds of an explosion are minimal. Those are certainly present. 
the real danger here comes from the fact that it's carbon monoxide exposure. You know, if, if the fumes are in your vehicle, in the, the passenger cabin, or even in the trunk, there's a higher risk of, uh, of being exposed to carbon monoxide. We can be talking on the low end about headaches, nausea, the flu, and uh, more prolonged exposure. We can be talking about more serious incidents like extreme illness and in extreme, extreme cases, death. Right. So ventilation is key here. Absolutely. Number one concern. Okay. So then, Lewis, run us through those safety tips one more time for people. Sure. So if you're bringing gasoline across the border, make sure they're in appropriately marked containers, uh, ideally jerry cans. Uh, you do have a, an exemption of up to 150 kilograms. And at all times, your gasoline should be properly ventilated, whether that's strapped to the top of your roof or strapped into a, uh, a flatbed of a truck. Uh, but do not ever store gasoline containers full or empty in your trunk or in the passenger cabinet of a vehicle. Hmm, I have a feeling a lot of people are not following that rule necessarily. Yeah, I, I suspect you're right, unfortunately. And I think uh, with these kind of issues, the, the sad reality is it's just a matter of time until we're talking about it in more tragic terms. Uh, okay, Lewis, listen, thank you for the advice today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks very much for having yeah, me. Yeah, that was great advice. That's Lewis Smith, the manager of national projects with the Canada Safety Council, outlining the rules and regulations surrounding um, the allowable transport of gasoline in personal vehicles. Now, obviously, today, there's lots of talk about the weather, right? There's the good aspects of the weather, people enjoying the heat, and then there are the concerns about the weather. And top of mind right now, of course, is the awful story out of Burnaby. A 16-month-old child has died. A police saying that their initial information suggests this child was left in the car for up to nine hours yesterday. High temperatures in Burnaby as well. So there is that. There's an update coming in about 25 minutes time or so. We will have that for you live on the Simi Sarah show. But also there's the aspect of the heat itself. More records are breaking today as a result of this weather. So we wanted to check in with Mark Madriga, Global News Chief Meteorologist, to find out when is this going to end? How long is this going on for? Mark, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Hi, Simi. Hi. Okay. So today, yesterday was record breaking. Today, even more so. Yeah, temperatures are maybe up a degree or so versus uh, yesterday's highs. And yesterday we set 15 temperature records officially, and uh, 14 of those were on the south coast. One was up on the north coast at Terrace. But the reason uh, we're setting all the high temperature records, or at least we did yesterday uh, here on the coast, is we have that air now flowing from the B.C. interior. So it's an offshore flow right near the water's edge. You get that sea breeze. But uh, overall, most places uh, very hot again this afternoon. I say very hot compared to our average highs and uh, you know July would be hotter than this but this is record-breaking heat so today I expect many temperatures to fall for records again nothing yet up to the noon hour but we will have some records set this afternoon possibly the airport but not likely in Vancouver more places uh, away from the ocean uh, again will set records this afternoon probably at least a dozen or more in the uh, southern interior for our listeners in the Kamloops area close to 30 degrees is the plan wow. this afternoon yeah it's about 20 looks like 22 23 degrees in there right now so we'll go upper 20s to near 30 and uh, that would be let's see very close to a record high uh, for the date there too so some records may be set in the interior but again most of them will be set on the south Coast. There is an end in sight to this. Now, okay. tomorrow, yeah, tomorrow in the southern interior, probably close to the heat of today, but also a 
little patch or two of moisture moving in and late tomorrow afternoon that may just trigger an isolated lightning strike or two or at least an afternoon shower just mainly over the mountains but um, really that's just a, a sign of further cooling coming um, well if not Sunday certainly by Monday Tuesday in the southern interiors we get back to the low to mid 20s but again a, a risk of uh, some lightning in there is the first hint that we may uh, start to see some changes and that's later tomorrow but uh, overall sunshine will dominate our weather there now on the south coast here here again, hot today. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow, close. We'll start to get the onshore flow. That's the key. We go from the offshore of the uh, push uh, from the interior to coast, get into a little onshore flow tomorrow night. So tomorrow afternoon, we could easily get up to the 27-degree range or so again, away from the water. But that's it. Sunday looks much cooler with highs more into the low 20s. And uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, upper teens okay. to maybe 20. So uh, it's a three-day little heat wave yesterday, today, and tomorrow. All right. Thank you so much for that, Mark. You're welcome. That's Mark Madriga, Global News Chief Meteorologist. And as Mark just mentioned there, you heard about the possibility of lightning strikes some in some places in the province. That's a concern for those who are keeping an eye on wildfires in this province. So just before we came on air today, I had a chance to speak with the information officer for the BC Wildfire Service, Kevin Skrepnik, and here's what he had to say. Well, Kevin, thank you for doing this for us today. And you know, we would rather not talk to you. I'm sure you're a nice person and everything, but we don't want to have to talk about wildfires in BC. And here we are again. And it seems like it's early this year. Well, you know, not uncommon to see uh, fires at this time of year by any stretch of the imagination. But of course, what is unusual is the weather we've been having over the last few days and, and quite frankly, the forecast for the weekend as well. Uh, five to 10 degrees above average for what we'd usually be seeing uh, in terms of temperatures. And then, of course, uh, really not a whole lot of rain in there. A number of uh, number of records broken yesterday. So that is definitely causing us a bit of concern in terms of uh, potential for wildfires. Are there particular areas that we are really concerned about? You know, the entire province right now, uh, we're in a moderate uh, fire danger, uh, you know, creeping up into high in some places. And given that we're not seeing a whole lot of relief until maybe a bit of rain Monday at the earliest, um, really that that risk has nowhere to go but up. Of particular concern, there is some potential uh, for some lightning. Uh, over the northern half of the province, uh, going into uh, overnight tonight and into tomorrow, uh, and not a whole lot of uh, not a whole lot of moisture associated with that system. So, uh, potential for some additional fires to be starting. Usually at this time of year, most of our fires are human caused. This is our first real lightning concern on the horizon. Okay, so then on top of you having to warn people to be careful, you also have to watch out for the weather. That makes the job extra tough, doesn't it? It does indeed, yeah. The, the weather, particularly the short-term weather, is really critical for us. And, you know, temperature is one thing, and obviously that's the concern right now, but that, that lack of rain is also going to be really critical, um, not only in the short term, but once we get into the summer as well. Okay, so then how are crews preparing for this, uh, this upcoming weekend in particular? Well, certainly, uh, you know, all six of our fire centers right now are kind of uh, regions across the province definitely gearing up for probably our busiest weekend so far this year, uh, given that forecast. So uh, definitely have crews on on standby, on alert. Uh, We've got a number of our air tanker groups have already uh, started and are, you know, ready to respond as well. Um, And then really just reaching out to the public, uh, you know, given that forecast, I have no doubt there's going to be lots of people uh, outdoors this weekend. Uh, Again, at this time of year, most of our fires are human cause. So we want people to be cautious. Uh, Campfires are permitted right now uh, throughout our jurisdiction. Um, But of course, we want to make sure people keep them safe, supervised and, uh, and small. 
speaking of that, then when we talk about uh, the campfire that you said are still you're still able to have a campfire right now, do we need to start looking at that? Like, should we be limiting that earlier in the year? Well, you know the 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 kind of reasons why we put a campfire ban in place are typically once we've gotten to a point where we we really need to do everything we can to stop any potential human caused fires. Um, but it is a bit of a, a bit of a double edged sword. Um, once we put that ban in place, uh, you know, if there's folks out there who are planning on flaunting the rules, they're probably just going to go deeper into the back country and have fires. Uh, when we put those bans in place, generally less people are out in the back country. That's less eyes out there to uh, report new fires to uh, kind of report people acting irresponsibly. So, uh, you know, I think um, really the prospects of a campfire ban would still be further into the year. Certainly, usually it's more into early July that we see that. And, you know, I'll be frank as well. I mean, the the cause of human caused fires typically isn't in the campfire realm. You know, it's a possibility. We see them every year, a handful, um, but it is typically more so around, um, you know, people doing larger scale burning, uh, industrial activities, discarded cigarettes to a degree, even the use of off-road vehicles and high grass, um, all of those contributing to that that human cost factor. Has any, has, has any of that improved over the last few years? And we've had such terrible <laughs> wildfire problems the last couple of years in this province. It, it, is behavior improving at all, do you think? You know, I think, I think broadly speaking, I think people are getting the message, and, and we certainly aren't seeing a trend upwards in terms of the number of human-caused fires. It's been fairly static. We've had busier seasons, and we've had higher statistics in terms of the total number of fires, but that's typically been the result of lightning activity. So that up and down is usually more so uh, to do with Mother Nature as opposed to, uh, to human activity. So, and, and I'll say, too, broadly, that, you know, when it comes to human-caused fires, for the most part, you know, these aren't things that have been, uh, you know, maliciously set. You know, we're right. ta- not talking about arson, it's more so carelessness. And at this time of year, given that it is still only May, even though it is hot out, you know, we're always concerned that people are going to get complacent as well. Yeah, let's just remind people then, what do you want them to remember and keep top of mind heading into the weekend? Well, certainly if there's folks out there that are going to be in the outdoors, you know, those campfire tips I said earlier, and, and a really critical one is if people are going to be leaving that area for any period of time, we do want them to fully extinguish that fire. Uh, you know, we don't want it taking off in conditions this hot. If we get a bit of wind, that can happen. If people are going to be staying um, closer to home for the weekend, um, we are big proponents of the FireSmart program. So firesmartbc.ca, lots of really valuable tips on there, especially people doing spring cleaning at this time of year. Very simple things, cleaning out eaves troughs, getting piles of wood, propane takes, things like that away from a house planting vegetation around a house that's going to be less fire prone. Uh, all of those things can go a long way to making that a, a more kind of defensible space for us uh, if we do have a wildfire that's affecting your property. All right, we'll see what we can do. Uh, Kevin, thank you, and hopefully it'll be a while before we uh, chat with you again. Let's hope. Let's hope indeed. Thank you. Let's hope so. Kevin Skrepnik, BC Wildfire Service Information Officer. It's like First Nations people say, when people say to them, governments say, we're consulting. You're already laughing. What a bunch of rubbish. That's like, if that was okay, you could say to somebody who is sexually assaulted, well, you consulted first. No, it's stupid. I have no idea what he was thinking with that speech, but that is the Speaker of the Legislature, Daryl Pleckis, speaking to the Lower Mainland Local Government Association on Wednesday night in Harrison Hot Springs. His whole speech is, let's just say, causing a lot of discussion today, and that's why we are going to be chatting with Richard Zessman, our Global News online legislative reporter. Hi, Richard. Hi, Simi. Boy, that was weird. It was, and I know what he was thinking because I just spoke to him. So I just ran down from the Speaker's office so that you and I could chat. We just had a 
fulsome discussion about the speech that he made on Wednesday. So let's start with his explanation of that clip that you just ran. Okay. So I asked him, how could you possibly compare First Nations consultation to consultation around a sex assault? And he said this was from a story he had heard from a First Nations woman who compared the way that government consults with that of consulting with someone before sexually assaulting them. And what he meant to explain was that you need to have consent. Consultation is not enough. You know, having a conversation and saying, oh, what would you like to see? And them saying, I don't want to see this. And then you doing it anyways is not consultation. You don't have consent. And he was retelling a story that somebody had told him. And he regrets the way that it came across. He regrets a lot of the way that the speech came across. He said he should have thought more thoroughly first about the audience he was speaking to, but more importantly about the words that he was using and how they could be um, interpreted. Uh, he he just told me he wish, wishes he w- listened to his wife more because she always tells him to speak less. <laughs> that, that's uh, a very that, wise thing that his <laughs> wife is telling him. But you know what, Richard? We have some of that audio yeah. that you had your chat with him where he talks about exactly what you just explained. Have a listen. I'm so surprised that got interpreted the way it did. Um, what I had said was is that... Um, Political leaders are always talking about having consulted with First Nations people. And, of course, First Nation people say, well, that isn't enough. Uh, and, of course, it isn't enough because you, you can't have consultation in and of itself. You have to have consultation with genuine engagement. You have to have consent of uh, the participants with respect to what it is you're, you're going forward with. Uh, I got the notion of the... Uh, the sexual assault is an example provided to me by an Aboriginal woman who was trying to make the point about consultation and she said to me uh, you know if, if all it was was consultation was uh, okay then uh, let's say someone sexually assaulted me and then uh, went on to say well I did consult with her first uh, would that be okay well of course it wouldn't it's absurd uh, you know, people can't be doing things without genuine consent. But Richard, why didn't he just explain it that way? And because I think a lot of it has to do with he is a guy who likes to shoot from the hip. Oh. We've learned that about Daryl Plekis, right? He likes to be, um, he likes to send messages and, and the, the language that he uses. And he did not do a very good job. Uh, explaining it to that crowd like he just did to me. And I think a lot of it is in retrospect. A lot of it was he was trying to raise a point to get a reaction from the crowd and did it in the very wrong way and has been rightly criticized for it. I I think he's a bit surprised with the reaction, but I think when you listen to the audio, there is no surprise, I don't think, on how people are reacting. Well, no kidding. Exactly. He didn't put it very well. But let me also ask you about something else he said last night. He said, if you don't like, if you thought the previous information that had come out about the legislature spending and all of that, you thought that was awful. He said, wait till you hear what's coming up. And isn't that significant? Because he's actually already seen the McLaughlin report. So I asked him about that as well. And he was not referencing the McLaughlin report. My understanding from listening to that audio was that's what he was alluding to. But what he told me today was he's alluding to the workplace review, uh, which we haven't yet seen, uh, as well as potentially the forensic audit. But what he mentioned to me just now was the workplace review. 
Yes, he's seen the McLaughlin report. He would not tell me what's in it. I pushed and I prodded Simi, and he wouldn't <laughs> of tell me. you did. But when you look at the expression on his face, you'd have to assume that it may go his way. But all of that is just me reading tea leaves. Well, you're pretty uh, good at that, though, Richard. I'm going to give you kudos on that one. He was, um, as he should be, very protective of that information. Um, he did not commission that report. He acknowledged to me that it is uh, private and will be released likely at some point soon. We've heard from other places it could be as early as next week. He did not want to give any of that away. I don't want to say that he gave any hints because he didn't. Uh, but when he was making reference of people will not believe what they see next, it was in reference to other reports, not the McLaughlin report. He said he would never give out any information from reports that are secret like that and have to first go before the caucuses before they're released to the public. Okay. Do you believe he regrets like the comments yes. from last night? Yeah. Yeah, I think he does. I, I think he realized first it was the wrong audience, you know, that you shouldn't be talking about how nobody likes and trusts politicians and it needs to be fixed in front of a group of politicians. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the speaker's role is one where he is supposed to be supporting the work of the MLAs here. And in this turn, he seemed critical. He also mentioned in our brief conversation about he has a lot of respect for a lot of the politicians that work in this building, but lacks respect for others. Um, I think ah. uh, there are questions around whether, again, um, he, you know, he's a busy guy and he probably should have spent more time thinking about his remarks. He also said the public should have a look at his book as well oh. as the slide presentation Jeez. he put forward because those are the arguments. And without fully seeing the presentation, uh, you can't fully understand uh, the points he was trying to make. All right. Well, that sounds like an explanation. Thanks, Richard. And, and the book's free too, Simi. I don't want to sound like he's trying to get people to go buy Good his point. book. The book Thank is you. free online Thank and you, you can go get it. So <laughs> he doesn't want everybody, that. all the listeners to go out and buy okay. it. It's free online if you want to look at it. And he says it's part of the whole package. Okay. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> Thanks, Simi. Richard Zussman, our Global News online legislative reporter. So this week is Mental Health Week and Canadians are being encouraged to share their own experiences when it comes to this topic and to learn more about how mental health issues can impact the lives of so many people. So as part of this, the BC Schizophrenia Society is bringing awareness to schizophrenia, a complex mental disorder, and it's often misunderstood. And they're doing this through Canadian music. They've partnered with 10 Canadian artists and they've produced an album that replicates what it is like for someone to live with schizophrenia. And they wanted the general public to better understand this very personal issue. So uh, we're going to play a little bit from the album. We just want to warn you in advance. It is, let's just say, an immersive experience. It is designed to emulate some possible symptoms of schizophrenia. So some of you may find the content disturbing. We're going to talk more to some of the creators behind this in just a moment. But let's just say listener discretion is advised. I will always be here tormenting you. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. This is a very different kind of project. How did the idea for this come about? 
So the idea of the, the songs of schizophrenia was uh, approached to us by Rethink Canada, um, who had a concept that they wanted to to try. So we really would like to thank Rethink Canada, Vapor Music, and the artists who donated their songs and the voice actors that who made this campaign possible. And the concept of the radio ads and songs of schizophrenia is to demonstrate to people how auditory hallucinations may feel uh, for someone that that has a serious mental illness, but it's, uh, especially schizophrenia, because that is a, a common symptom of uh, schizophrenia. It's really so jarring. Kind of, it's, it, when you listen to it, it's very uh, jarring, and it really definitely gets people's attention. That was the was that the idea here? Yeah, that was, was the 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 idea was to really draw attention to how it may feel like for someone with schizophrenia um, and, and to, to make people aware and, um, and make us aware of British uh, BC Schizophrenia Society as well and the support that is out there to help people with schizophrenia and serious mental illness. And how common is schizophrenia? Schizophrenia is... There is one in 100, so that's about one, 1% of the population. And in BC, it affects uh, approximately about 47,000 people um, across BC. That's a, that's a pretty big, sizable number there. What do we know about it? Are we learning new things? Um, so, so it is a, a chemical imbalance in, in the brain. And there's always one of, one of our pillars at BC Schizophrenia Society, and we do have a foundation and their main concentration is uh, research. So there is research, constant research going on uh, on different aspects of it, uh, of uh, schizophrenia. And one of the, one of the complementary treatments that has been talked about quite often is cognitive remediation. So that is something that, that has research and, and is, pretty new and there's um, where our foundation is funding a new research uh, looking at um, uh, adding a protein in the in the brain um, that may help people with schizophrenia so there's it gets a little complicated when you talk about research but th- those are some of the things that are that are happening right now yeah you, you've said that you know this is a disease it faces a lot of stigma and is very misunderstood mm-hmm. in, in what ways is it misunderstood do you think well, uh, I, the big uh, misunderstanding is when it's perceived in in, in media, it, it is usually someone that is not stable or is not on medication that has done something wrong. Um, when there is hope and when someone is on medication and having complementary treatments, they can they can be successful and still maintain. Um, a lifestyle of um, a uh, society as a and contribute to society. So the stigma around schizophrenia is is negative due to the exposure in the media and the myth about schizophrenia as as well, leading from from the media exposure um, from that. It's just one of the the stigma right. about it. Um, people just don't know the understanding of schizophrenia, and that's why education is a key part of breaking that uh, 
stigma away and creating the conversation, which this campaign is trying to do to make, have that conversation to make people comfortable and not fearful to have these conversations and not be judged. Is there any one way this this disease affects people? Like how does it impact them? Uh, uh, that's a good question. Uh, there's a lot of symptoms to to uh, schizophrenia, but uh, the one impact that um, that impacts people living with schizophrenia is the cognitive effects that it has um, on them. So sometimes their cognitive uh, ability isn't the same because it is a, a, a brain disease. So that that is a very common a very common. Uh, concern with people living with schizophrenia is their cognitive function isn't varies and isn't the same, isn't constant. So they might have struggles for thinking for a period of time or multitasking, um, um, executive functions uh, is the is the term that they they use. So uh, there is many many symptoms, but that is one that that most, and I'm not going to say all, but is, is one of the impacts that would hit a majority of people living with schizophrenia. Well, then getting back to the project here, Songs of Schizophrenia, mm-hmm. how, how was this developed? And when people hear it, what are they hearing? What, is, what, is, what are the, all the different sounds there? So, yeah, so what, what we worked with the reason in Canada and this, uh, on this, so that as it, it's to... To demonstrate how it may feel to have that auditory hallucination, so some of the the voices and interjections that we decided on and play and talk to people with schizophrenia was the main. The some of the things that happen to people with schizophrenia, thinking they're the Messiah or God or having a demon um, talking to them or someone. Um, being paranoid and always put someone a voice always putting them down is where we we focus the interject injections um, in the campaign to try to demonstrate how it may feel with someone with with schizophrenia so that's where we pulled the different voices and different kind of sound effects to kind of try to demonstrate that 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 feel the best that that we we can because right. it's it's definitely different for everybody and not the same for everybody living with schizophrenia. Yeah, so did people who do have schizophrenia, did they listen to this and did they did they weigh in with their thoughts on this? Yeah, so uh, Rethink uh, Canada did, did some research beforehand before uh, approaching us and they, they had some questions and talked to people with lived experience and as the, the campaign was going on, we uh, talked to people with um, schizophrenia, got their their feedback as well, and also our our members, and which are family members uh, li- uh, with loved ones living with schizophrenia, a little bit of feedback. So we did have uh, feedback uh, definitely from people with living living with schizophrenia. So where can people hear this? So yeah, the the songs of schizophrenia. There's more information at our website, um, bbcss.org, and it is um, on Apple Music and uh, Spotify and YouTube as well. And I will, and all those links are on our our website, which is 
BC Schizophrenia Society, or B, sorry, bcff.org. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for this. Not a problem. I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope uh, this brings awareness and education to people and drives people to uh, BC Schizophrenia Society. I hope so, too. That is Andrew Stewart, the Interim Executive Director of the BC Schizophrenia Society, uh, talking about the project that they have launched as part of Mental Health Week. It's called Songs of Schizophrenia, and you can hear more on their website. As Andrew mentioned there, it was fascinating. Speaking as a parent, as a police officer, as a human, the only way to prevent this is regardless of fatigue, regardless of how many things you have on the go in your world at any given point, the child is the focus of your attention and your care until they are put into the care and attention of of another individual. It's about diligence, vigilance. We all get tired. We're all exhausted at certain points. It's about taking that extra time. Uh, it's, it's tragic. It's horrible. There's no words to describe what anybody would be feeling right now. Any of the first responders who attended, anybody at the hospital who attended, any of the family members. It's absolutely tragic. That is Chief Superintendent Deanne Burley from Burnaby RCMP reminding parents to be vigilant in this hot weather. And of course, that following uh, the fact that they have confirmed that a 16-month-old baby boy died in a hot car yesterday. We wanted to learn more as much as we can about this story right now. Uh, Global News reporter Robin Crawford has been following it and she joins us with more. Hi, Robin. Hi, Simi. Okay, what do we know right now about what happened yesterday? Well, uh, a 16-month-old left in a car for several hours. Uh, the call came in around 5.45. Police did not confirm who made that call, whether it was a parent or a witness, but uh, they were there within four minutes and got the child out, and unfortunately the child did not survive. Okay, and so uh, what are they doing right now? Like, What do we know about the parents in this situation? What's happened? Yeah, the parents are cooperating. No arrests have been made. They're in the very early investigation uh, part, and uh, they're talking to witnesses, they're talking to parents, they're talking to family members. But as of right now, uh, we haven't heard from the parents, uh, but we do know that uh, they are investigating. Right. Now, obviously, a lot of heightened concern here. So are they all over the neighborhood at this point? No, you know, I was in the neighborhood, Simi. I didn't see a large police presence, but what I did notice in that area is it's very busy. There's a large park and there's a daycare up the street. So two different playgrounds in that area. Saw many kids walking around. Uh, Definitely a bustling part of Burnaby. Okay. Is there anything we know about like where the car was positioned? Was it closer to the daycare, closer to the park or anything like that? No, police did not confirm where that was. Did, didn't you find today, Robin, I was listening to the press conference, like I've never heard the police come out so quickly and, and do that kind of warning before. Do you think that was unusual? Well, she did continuously say how much this has rocked the community. Uh, and that's the thing that we're taking away from this is that, uh, you know, she said over and over again, this has rocked the community. This is a tragedy. And also, you know, don't leave your children in the car. We're in a uh, warm sweat here. It's going to be warm for a while now. And uh, that's what we're trying to take away from this. All right, Robin, listen, thank you for the update on this. Thanks, Simi. That's Robin Crawford, our global news reporter, who's in the vicinity now of uh, where these reports came in yesterday with the warning from Burnaby RCMP about in this weather, just be vigilant with your kids. Make sure you double check that car before you close the doors and walk away. Uh, because right now they said the parents are investigating. They located the father at the scene yesterday, uh, but there is still more to come on this. So keep it tuned in right here for the very latest. And of course, to global news throughout the afternoon for more on 
on this story. Oh, this is going to be fun. We have Andreas Fisher with us, otherwise known as the Spider Guy. He's an SFU PhD student who is going to be at the Science Rendezvous. It's an all-day national science festival. It's being held on Saturday, actually tomorrow. It's at universities, colleges, and city spaces all over BC. Now, for more info, you can go to sciencerendezvous.ca. But Andreas, you're going to be there to talk about your favorite thing, which is spiders. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Tell me about your friends. Who have you brought with you? So I brought some of my friends. I have here a false widow and also the real black widow. And also brought some jumping spiders and also a black widow web for you to feel. Oh, that's great. How's how's the lid on that jumping spider container? Oh, well, they're safe. <laughs> I hope so. What do you love about spiders, Andreas? Uh, what I love about them is very plainly that most people don't know them don't know much about it and have a lot of misconceptions about them. And for me, it's just something super fascinating uh, to learn and to study because that's my profession uh, because they're just so often so misunderstood. Really? Like poor spiders? Pretty much, yeah. But they're kind of creepy, you got to admit. Well, that's just because the media portrays them that way. Oh, it's our fault. It's just our, your <laughs> fault, basically, yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's movies, right? They Movies really make them freaky. It is mostly movies, but also parents. And like every the surrounding society that raised children, that is basically that imprints us at a young age to be afraid of spiders. And when we grow up, we are afraid of spiders. And we pass that on to the next generation. So it's a vicious circle. It is. Now, you've brought one particularly large friend here with you. Uh, What is it and what is its name? So I brought one of my tarantulas. His name is Carl Jürgen. He uh, (laughs) is just a very, very friendly guy. Because I I have the part of container facing me that says Carl Jürgen on it. And I thought, is that that you've actually named? Yeah, he has a pet name. He's an actual pet. So I don't do research with uh, tarantulas. I have them for science outreach purposes that people can engage with spiders and literally lose their fear by uh, learning. Yeah, Carl Jürgen's a big guy. Um, Yeah, he's roughly three inch long, uh, brown in color, and um, has a yellow head. So he's very, very nice. Very nice to look at. Yes, you had yeah. him crawling around earlier. Is he dangerous? No, not at all. So um, most tarantulas are just not dangerous for us in any capacity, even if they would bite. And all spiders are not prone to bite, so they don't have fun biting us. Oh, so then why, especially tarantulas, how is it that we think they're dangerous even though they're not? Again, it's media and perception. Um, and I think just because they are large spiders, tarantulas are become very, very large. The largest tarantulas become 30 centimeters in diameter. Did you say 30 centimeters? Three zero, yes. Oh, boy. Yeah, but again, they are not aggressive and uh, they don't like to bite us. So, um, which, which ones do like to bite us? Um, there is pretty much no spider that like to bite us. But there's some that do. Well, only if you squeeze them. So spiders are not aggressive animals. They are wildlife. And as any other wildlife, if you threaten it to the point of death, they will defend themselves. So spiders, if you would squeeze them, they will try to bite you. Most spiders, in fact, 99.5% of all spiders of the whole world are not able to bite us, even if they want to. (laughs) You're so enthusiastic. I love that. Can they sense when they are about to have someone do harm to them? Like, do they have a defensive mechanism? Um, they kind of sense that there's something big approaching them and then they usually run away. So that is the, the natural response. Um, then they will sense if you actually squeeze them, they sense that and then they panic like any other wildlife animal would do. Now, a lot of these spiders, like, where do you collect them from? 
Yeah, so um, mostly in buildings, just around buildings, um, on beaches, depending what I'm looking for. So um, the jumping spider I have here, I collected uh, inside a building at Simon Fraser University, just happened to walk inside. The false widows I have here, which are very common here in the Metro Vancouver area, but also around the world inside of buildings. Um, yeah, so I collected them. May I see the false widow? Yeah, sure. So... She is sitting here, down here at the bottom of the web. It's a little blurb. Yeah, I um, see. So her they there. kind of look like black widows. Yeah, that's where the name comes from. They have the same body shape, slightly different coloration. But when you look in a dark corner, you just see the body shape. Well, you think it's a black widow. So most people think they have a black widow in their home, but in real life, they don't. So. I have here the real Black Widow. And when now, you look at her belly... Oh, look at the size of that one there. Yeah, she is roughly one and a half inch long in leg length. And when you look at her belly, she has a red hourglass on her belly. I see that. Um, and like on the front of her belly. And that is the characteristic for a Black Widow. So if you have a spider that doesn't have that hourglass, it's most likely not a Black Widow. And also, nobody's going to get close enough, Andreas, to actually see that part. Well, what, one thing may surprise you: there is no spider in Canada that can harm us more than a bee, but the black widow. That means every other spider you encounter in your whole life here in Canada that is not a black widow is perfectly harmless. Okay, but where do we find the black widow then? Well, in the Okanagan, they um, do can enter buildings or just around uh, houses. Um, they like it very hot and very humid, so irrigation boxes in the Okanagan. Here in the Metro Vancouver area, they are more on beaches that are extremely sun-exposed and have driftwood, which gives them shelter, and also mossy habitat because they need the humidity. So the sandy um, ground is too dry for them. And they're also on the island, same thing on the beaches under the driftwood. Okay, now this one looks like what, about one inch? Yeah, pretty much. Is that the standard size for a black widow? That is pretty much a fully grown black widow female, yes. I can see why you're fascinated by spiders, Andreas, because when they move, it's kind of hypnotic. Oh, yeah. Very mesmerizing. It is mesmerizing. Yeah, you're right. When did you first become fascinated with them? Um, actually, it was in first year biology studying uh, at the university in Ger Germany. I had a lecture about roughly any crawly insect, spiders stuff. And there was a question I had about spiders and the prof couldn't answer it. And he said, we don't know it. And I was like, I didn't believe that this guy didn't. Uh, I thought he just did a bad job. And so I got a bunch of spooks about spiders. And the more I read about spiders, the more I learned about spiders, the more fascinating it became. And the more I learned, the less I became afraid because I realized there is no scientific reason to be afraid of spiders. There's literally no reason. And yet we actually have a name for it, right? Arachnophobia. Yeah, it's one of the most common phobias in the whole world. And you are one of the people that does not have that. Well, I used to. As a teenager, I was very uncomfortable with spiders. But again, the more I learned, the more I realized it's unreasonable. And then this phobia got away. So education can make a tremendous difference. Now, you're running a lab with, what, 600 spiders in there? Oh, just about right, yeah. Okay, and what are you studying then? So I studied a chemical communication. That means how do males find their females because the females release a smell to attract the males. We call that pheromone. Those are chemicals. And we are trying to identify that mostly for pest management purposes. Because so many people are afraid for those spi about, of those spiders, we try to give them 
options to get rid of them without using pesticides because pesticides is a big, big problem for us humans, for our children, for our pets, but also for the environment, for the wildlife. So we try to develop ways in our lab to reduce the pesticide use. So essentially you're trying to create a, a, a voluntary no-go zone for spiders, where spiders would be like, yeah, I'm not going there. I don't like what I, what I smell there. So we do both. So we try to do the repellent aspect, so yep. a no-go zone, but also basically a love trap. So where we A could, love trap? Yeah, so where the males think there is a female, so they're looking for love and <laughs> run into a trap because we created the chemicals uh, that mimic a female. Is there any threat to the spider population? Um, not in urban settings. Um, we have a lot of invasive species here in, in the seas. For example, the false widow is originally from Europe, well established in North America since over 100 years now. Um, so I wouldn't be afraid that we would make them go extinct. Um, but but that shows how amazing they are, though, right? Oh, yeah, they are amazing. So adaptable that they can make themselves at home anywhere. Pretty much, yeah. Okay, so then with your research, how do you how do you do that? How do you figure out what attracts them to what? So yeah, we run a lot of tests. So what we do, for example, we know the females put their sex pheromones on their webs, and like the web you have here, and those webs, um, we then extract them chemically and test different chemicals that are on the web and find by try and error mostly which chemicals of the hundreds and hundreds of chemicals from the web are actually the ones that attract the males. So Andreas brought with him a sample of a, is it a black widow spider web? That is a black widow spider web. And I can't, I can't break it, Andreas. Like he gave me a little piece of wire to kind of touch the web with, but it's so strong. Oh yeah, it's so strong that we are not able to create anything like it. It is 10 times stuff tougher than steel and much more tougher than Kevlar. So if you could create a t-shirt out of that web... It'd be bulletproof. It would be bulletproof. Really? And much more light, and not as thick as Kevlar. What is it that we don't understand about that? Oh, it's extremely complex, and we are, just from an engineering point of view, are not able to create anything like it yet. But there are many, many research labs working on that issue right now. That's the other thing I was going to ask you is about, do we know enough about spiders or were there enough people out there like you who are fascinated by them doing research? Um, it's mostly a funding question. So it's hard to get funding for spider research. Um, there are, I would yeah, a little bit more than 400 spider researchers around the world. So there was a meeting uh, three and a half years ago in Denver, which was considered as the largest arachnological, that means science researcher meeting of the world until then. And we were a little bit more than 360 people there. That's <laughs> a small convention then. That's of a people small who are studying spiders for but, such important work. Yeah, exactly. So it's hard to get funding. Is there a spider uh, that you've always wanted to study or take a look at, like anything that you've never been able to get your hands on? Um, it's funny that you uh, say that. Yeah, I always wanted to work with the European Black Widow. As you hear, I'm from Germany originally. Yeah. And that was the one which really set me off for research. I collected one in 2014 in Croatia and really mesmerized and fascinated me. It's a beautiful, stunning spider uh, with 13 red dots on its back. Um, and happened? I just got, yes, last week, I got last week a package from Slovenia of colleagues sending me a few specimens so I can do research with them. Oh, so you've got, you're looking forward to some lab time, is that it? Yeah, next week. 
That sounds fascinating to me. So is that is that it? That's the one that's the one on your list that you really That is the major one on my list. Yeah. I'm pretty much fascinated by black widows in general, uh, because they are so overly hyped in the media, but are so tremendously misunderstood. Are you everywhere you go, like if you're on vacation, are you looking down on the ground looking for spiders? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty much. You're never looking up, right? You're always looking in the corners and dark places yeah, looking for spiders. It, it becomes it becomes a professional habit, yes. I could imagine. Well that's Andreas yeah. Fisher. So you're going to be at Science Rendezvous? Yes. So tomorrow we have a outreach event at Simon Fraser University. It's for families. It's free. There will not only be spiders, so we have a chemistry show, we have astrology we cool. have every almost every science we have at Simon Fraser will be having booths there it's free and also the city of Burnaby will have some events up there so it will be a fantastic uh, event for the beautiful day tomorrow it will be go hang out with some of Andreas's spiders and Andreas you can learn so much uh, you can go to science rendezvous.ca for more information Andreas thank you thank you